you have a Bible with you, would you please grab it and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. Turning to Genesis, chapter 6, the first book of the Bible, beginning in verse 5. So we've been, over the last month or so, making our way through the book of Genesis. And last week we looked at that famous account of the fall. The account of the temptation and sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. We saw that, um, that Satan came to Eve and tempted her, instead of listening to God's word, instead of obeying God, to be her own God. To call the shots herself. To decide for herself what's right and wrong for her, to go her own way, to do what she wanted. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. And as a result, they had to leave God's presence. They had to go out from the garden. And in chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis, which we're sort of skipping over to get to Genesis chapter 6, I just want to fill you in there. What you see in those chapters is that life outside the garden is characterized by the spread of two realities. In chapter 4, what we see is the spread in the world of sin. Adam and Eve had some sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain killed Abel and then lied about it to God. Sin is spreading as as people are spreading. Then chapter 4 follows Cain's line from father to son all the way down to someone named Lamech, who it says had two wives. So already, very early in the world, there's this perversion of the family, this taking of two wives, treating women as somehow less than men. And Lamech, it says, also boasted to his wives that someone had struck him, so he killed him. So as as humanity is growing, sin's growing too. Chapter 5 shows us the spread in the world of death. So chapter 5 follows the line of Adam and Eve's son, Seth, on down, and what you see in each generation is this refrain. Chapter 5, verse 5, for example. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. And it just continues like that all the way down to a man from Adam's family named Noah. So what we're seeing is in the world, in the days of Noah, the, the world is it's filling up with people, but it's also filling up with sin and death. And that's where the story picks up in chapter 6, verse 5. So would you follow along as I read? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. 
of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we, we come to your word, to a passage that maybe is familiar, maybe overly familiar to some of us, a, a passage that we've maybe encountered only in, in children's stories, but we want to come with fresh eyes and fresh faith to your word, and we want to hear what you have to say. We want you to speak. So Father, we invite that and we welcome you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you hang around Christians for a while, a word you're going to hear sooner or later is the word saved. You're going to hear people say things like, I got, I got saved when I was very young, or um, I, wasn't, I wasn't saved, and that's, that's why I was living this way. This is how I used to think before I was saved, or I, I believed in God, but I wasn't saved until... But if you're new to Christianity and you're hearing all this talk about saved, the natural question you're going to ask is, saved from what? Salvation is a deliverance from something. It's a rescue. It it makes you safe from something. What are all these Christians saying they're saved from? This story, the account of Noah, is one of the most famous, vivid, compelling pictures in the whole Bible of what it means to be saved. And so we're going to look at this passage, we're going to look at three facets of salvation. Why we need it, who receives it, and what it leads to. So first, why we need salvation, which Genesis 6 says is the grief of God. So God tells Noah that he is going to blot out all life on the earth. He's going to send a flood and and everything living will die that's not in the ark. And the reason he does it is that it's, it's because of his grief, his sorrow at what humanity had become. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now God made humanity in his image to reflect his goodness. But then he, he looked out over this world, this world filling up with people, and what he saw was that every intention of the thoughts of our hearts was only evil 
continually. I mean, it's hard to imagine anything stronger than that. Every intention, only evil, all the time. That's what God saw. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that humanity is as bad as we could possibly be. Even people who have no connection with God, they're still made in his image. They still have a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. God God restrains us from being as bad as we could be. There's genuine love in the world. There There are faithful marriages. There are sacrificial parents. There are people who do justice. But that's because of the mercy of God, not the goodness of humanity. The Bible's assessment of humanity is that every intention, every thought is tainted by sin. Nothing we do is pure, ever. And if you, if you resist that assessment, just think for a moment about the things you do which you consider good. Why do you do them really? Isn't at least part of the reason you act ethically at work because you don't want to lose your job? Or get blacklisted? Isn't part of the reason you volunteer with at-risk kids because of the way it makes you feel about yourself? Isn't part of the reason why parenting is so important to you because, you know, your kids reflect on you and you want them to reflect well? Isn't part of the reason you come to church because you feel guilty about other areas of your life and you sort of want to tip the scales? Is, what do you ever do simply because you love God and want to please him. I'm including myself here too. What, what do you ever do which deep down isn't actually, at least in some sense, self-serving? And that is what grieves God to his heart. He regrets making us, not because he made a mistake, not because he didn't see this coming, but because something he rejoiced over, something he said was very good, had become a sorrow to him. How seriously do you take the grief of God over your sin. Now, God is our maker. We have no power to harm him. We can't hurt God. But when we act selfishly, when we act hypocritically, when we, when we instead of doing things just to love him, we do them for ourselves, it grieves him. It gives him sorrow in his heart. When he looks at the world, he looks at the corruption of governments, he looks at violence done to the weak, at the neglect of the poor, he looks at gossip and manipulation and pride, and it grieves him to his heart. So what does he do? He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't fly into a rage. He says, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how I made the world. And so I'm just, I'm going to literally wipe it clean and start fresh. And he can do that. He made us and we belong to him. He has the right to flood the world in judgment. And the New Testament says that he's going to do this again. Not with water, but with fire. Second Peter chapter 3 says, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God will not let the world go on like this forever. He will again finally cleanse the world of all sin, everything crooked, everything wrong, and make a fresh start one last time. And that's what we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from God, from his judgment on the corruption in our hearts and the corruption in the world. We don't want to be swept away like the people were swept away in the days of the flood. And so suddenly it becomes really important to know the answer 
to this question. Who receives salvation? Who gets it? To whom does it come? And Genesis 6 tells us it comes to people of obedient faith. Now, now in Genesis 6, in the whole world, one person stood out, right? Look at verses 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In the whole world, one person walked with God, and God saw him, and God saved him, and God saved his family. God told him the flood was coming. He told him to build the ark. He said, make it like this, make it this big, make these rooms, bring everything in, get enough food. I'm going to take care of you. And look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Why? Why did Noah obey? Because he believed God. He obeyed because of his faith. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He did it by faith. He did it because he believed what God had said about the flood. He had no visual proof. There weren't any clouds on the horizon. He just believed what God said and he ordered his life according to it. Living faith leads to obedience. If you believe God, you'll do what he says. Please don't hear me say that living faith leads to perfection. That's not going to happen in this life for any of us. But living faith leads to obedience, to real life change, to a pursuit of the life that God says is the happy life, the life he calls blessed. Real beliefs change how you live. If you believe in the reality of car accidents, you're going to wear your seatbelt and put your kids in their safety seats. If you believe in the reality of salmonella, you're going to wash your hands after you crack an egg. You won't get on an airplane unless you believe on some level that Bernoulli's principle holds. And that thing, if it goes fast enough, is going to lift off and not fall out of the sky. It's the same here. It, it makes no sense to say you believe in Christianity and, and live with, without reference to it, right? Imagine if Noah didn't build the ark. Imagine a conversation with him. Noah, don't you believe a flood is coming? I do. I do. I totally, I 100% believe a flood is coming. But you're not building the ark. Well, God knows my heart. He doesn't expect perfection. You know, he knows how busy I am with working the kids. When things settle down, it gets a little easier. I will absolutely build the ark. You would say, Noah, if you really believe in the flood, this is going to change your priorities. You're going to get on this. If you really believe, you're going to build the ark. If we, if we believe in God's judgment, we'll obey him like Noah. And we'll persevere in faith like Noah. Because Noah's need for faith, it didn't stop on the day when God shut the door and the rains began, Right? Noah got on that boat, and then he no longer needed to believe the flood would come. Then he needed to believe that the flood would end. So we, if you know the story, you know that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But that, that wasn't the whole time on the ark. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And then it was months before they saw any ground at all, before the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. It was, they were on that boat for more than a year before they could get off and go and fill the earth the way that they were supposed to. And through those long days and nights, without any glimpse of the sun, any view of land, Noah had to believe that God had not forgotten him, that God was going to bring the flood to an end, that that everything he said would come true. And God hadn't forgotten him. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. 
but God remembered Noah. If you've put your trust in God, if that trust is changing your life, you can know that he remembers you too. His eye is on you. In the whole world, God saw Noah, and he sees you too. On the day of his judgment, you will pass through in safety. And what will follow? So we've seen the need for salvation, why we need it, who receives it, and then finally what salvation leads to. It leads to new creation. Have you ever wondered why God destroyed the world with a flood? Why water? Why not something else? It's because there's something he wanted us to see in that. He wanted us to remind, he wanted to remind us of something. In chapter 1, verse 2 of Genesis, it says that before God did his work of creation, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. At the beginning of the seven days of creation, everything was darkness and water, and then God began to separate things. He separated light from darkness on the first day. The second day, he separated the waters above from the waters below. The third day, the land from the water. He just, he divided it up. He made it orderly. And so when he wanted to start over, what did he do? He just broke down the barriers. He, he let the water come down from above. He let the water come down from underneath. He let the land and the sea mix. He just, he started over with a clean slate. He decreated the world so he could recreate it. And so when, and when Noah and his family emerged from the ark, do you know what God says to them? In chapter 9, verse 1, he says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what he said to Adam and Eve when he created them in chapter 1. He's starting fresh. It's a new creation. Maybe this time humanity will get it right and they'll live the way they were supposed to live from the beginning. And it starts well. You know, the first thing Noah does when he comes out of the ark, he offers a sacrifice. He worships God. And the, the aroma of it, Mo, Moses tells us, pleased God. And, and God made a covenant with Noah and said, I'm never going to flood the earth like this again. It's such a good start. It's so promising. But if you read chapter 9 and you see where it goes, it doesn't take long for things to start going downhill. Noah plants a vineyard, and he cultivates the grapes, and he makes some wine, and he gets drunk, and he passes out in his tent. And one of his sons, his son Ham, sees it, and he goes and gossips to his brothers about what's going on. And when Noah finds out about it, when he is back in his wits, he curses Ham's son Canaan. So God, what God had done, he, he scoured the entire world for the most righteous person, saved only him and his family, and in no time at all, the world had again been corrupted and ruined. It was already falling apart. So what we're seeing there, you think, it's not as though God didn't see that coming. God's trying to show us something, and what he's trying to show us is the problem is deeper. The problem is not out there in the world. The problem's in here. The reason why things went so bad so quickly is because the problem was sin, and sin was in the ark. Sin was in the ark because sin was in the people. And so even scouring the whole world didn't solve the problem. The problem is in our hearts. So then the story of Noah ends in a way that leaves us unsettled. Because we, we see that there's corruption in the world. There's, there's this problem in our hearts. We all have this problem. And we see that the people who are saved are the people of obedient faith. So the question is, how obedient? If, if no one's perfect, how obedient do we need to be? How, 
How much faith do we need to have? How can we know that we're going to make the cut? How can we know that we're going to be saved? And the answer is in this passage. It, It hints at something we haven't examined yet. Because did God, listen, did God only save the righteous? No. He saved righteous Noah, and who else? His family, right? This is not a story about God saving one righteous person. It's a story about God saving a people through the righteousness of one. Now, what does that remind you of? Jesus is the true and better Noah, who alone on earth was perfectly righteous. Of him alone can it be ultimately said, he did all that God commanded him. Now, Noah built an ark to save his family from judgment, but Jesus took our judgment on the cross so that we could be forgiven and have life in him. You cannot escape God's judgment by being perfectly obedient. Nobody is. Your heart and my heart are too corrupted, but you can be saved from judgment by putting your trust in Jesus who took the judgment for you, who obeyed perfectly for you. Just as Noah's family was saved from judgment through their relationship to Noah, we can be saved from judgment through our relationship to Jesus. Salvation is not something we achieve. It's something God provides. In the same passage where Peter talks about the judgment to come, he says why God hasn't brought it yet, why it hasn't happened. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is holding back his judgment so that we can turn from our lives without him and turn to him for life and forgiveness and assurance that we're going to pass through. If you turn to him, if you trust in him, if you put your trust in Jesus, he will save you from death and judgment. He will give you a new heart so you become a person of obedient faith and abundant joy. He will make you a new creation. You will pass from death to life. And that, incidentally, is what we're about to celebrate through baptism. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves. That you are a God who scours the world and finds those who belong to him and keeps them safe through everything, above all, through your own judgment. You are a God who saves, and you save by grace. We are not good enough. We have not obeyed enough. Our faith is not strong enough. And yet Jesus did all that we couldn't so that we can come through by trusting in him. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to celebrate Jesus this morning, to celebrate Jesus this week. And when our hearts condemn us, when we see ourselves falling short, that we would run to him in faith. Help us to receive the gift of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.